heard the story about a pastor who was having a rather violent argument with the church's board, uh, which, by the way, isn't supposed to happen in the church, just so you know. It does sometimes. Not here, of course. And the pastor was absolutely unwavering in his opposition to one of the board's decisions, and realizing that they were getting absolutely nowhere with the pastor, the board called for an immediate vote on the matter, and the result was 12 to 1 against the pastor. Uh, The pastor, of course, being the only negative vote. But the pastor wasn't to be dissuaded by this vote by the board, and so he put his head right down on the table in the board meeting with the board fully present right there and prayed out loud to God, Lord, please show these incredibly stubborn men that I'm right. And almost immediately, what had been a beautiful, bright, sunshiny summer day outside turned dark and ominous. A terrible and violent storm ripped across the landscape. And the church board sort of cracked the shades and looked out, and they were a little puzzled by this. They were a little uncomfortable with it. But they told the pastor that, well, certainly, pastor, that seems to be an answer to your prayer. It was not sufficient proof that God was against them. So the pastor, he was like, all right, well, he wasn't giving up. So again, he put his head right down on the table and he prayed, Lord, please show these men that I am right and they are wrong. And this time, there was this massive earthquake. The ground shook, the windows rattled, the tables and chairs, they like moved across the floor. And the board was mildly shaken this time. There hadn't even ever been an earthquake in this region of the country before, but still they agreed, well, that doesn't prove anything. The pastor, though, he wasn't dissuaded. So this time he fell to his knees right on the boardroom floor and fervently prays, Lord, just tell them I'm right. And just then, lightning split the night. It crashed right through the window. The table, the boardroom table they were meeting around split right in half and a voice thundered out of heaven. He's right. (laughs) And the board members, now they're all laying on the floors, right? So they're collecting themselves, picking themselves up off the floor and they looked very uneasily at each other and then they all nodded sort of in unison at the chairman. And the chairman then very somberly spoke these words. It may indeed be that God agrees with you, but you're still outvoted 12 to 2. (laughs) And we're living in a culture and we're living at a time when so much of our ethics and so much of our morality as a culture, as a nation, is based just upon the majority's opinion, isn't it? More than ever, we're living at a point in time when morality is based on what seems right to most people. But I want to show you what the book of Proverbs in God's sacred text says about the way that seems right. Check out Proverbs 14, 12. There is a path before each person that what? Seems right. But it ends in death, the Bible says. And today we're going to be picking up and talking about another one of the traits of spiritual championship, and it's this one. Spiritual champions contend that there are indeed moral absolutes. And they're relevant to our lives. And they have dramatic consequences if we compromise them. See, while a very significant number of people in our culture and in our age are buying into this thing that we call relativistic morality, that, by the way, is the view that believes that all morality is relative to your point of view or perspective. Depending on where you're standing, depending on how you're looking in on that scenario, truth and morality is all just relative to your view on the subject. 
while a number, a significant number of people in our culture are buying into this relativistic morality deal, spiritual champions, which is who we are attempting as a community to become, spiritual champions are very busy swimming upstream, actually contending that morality is not relative. But there is absolute truth. There is absolute morality and that there are consequences, even very dramatic consequences, if those moral absolutes are violated, if we break them. But I want you to know that in the United States of America today, there are not very many spiritual champions who are contending that morality is not relative and is absolute. A guy named George Barna, who's a fantastic researcher, he did some research all the way back in 2001. So these are somewhat dated statistics, but I guarantee that these stats have not changed, have not gotten better, I mean, since 2001, and have only trended to the worst. Check this out. Barna in 2001 found this out about adults in America. 75% of all adults in America reject the notion that there are absolute moral truths. 75%, three quarters of the American population, adults, reject the notion that there are absolute moral truths. Most Americans believe that all truth, well, it's just relative to the situation, relative to the individuals involved. Bar- Barna also tells us that roughly, get this one, 80% of our 13 to 19 year olds in America embrace the exact same position regarding moral truth, that they're just relative. Barna goes on to tell us that four out of five teenagers say there is no absolute moral truth. And four out of five teenagers also tell us that nobody can know for certain whether they actually know what the truth even is. Four out of five. And this all lands uh, quite with a thud, actually. And if you run all of that out over a long period of time, it, even a short period of time, it lands in a place, and here's where relativistic morality lands us. If there is no absolute truth, then we are forced to accept contradictory or oppositional truths then, right? If there's no absolute truth, we're forced to accept contradictory truths. Here's one example of this. We know, us sitting in this room know, That Jesus claims that he is the singular way to a relationship with God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. That is a very strong and very distinct truth claim. At the same time, in the face of that truth claim, Islam, over on this hand, claims that Christianity is just false. Right? Now, How can both of those truth claims be true? The answer is they can't. They cannot both be true. They can't be true for some and not for others because they both make claims of exclusivity. See, Jesus never quantified his truth about being the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God the Father by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life for Palestinian Jews and Western Europeans only. He did not say that. He claims to be the only way for everyone, not just certain people based on your perspective, your upbringing, your heritage. You can never have mutually exclusive viewpoints both be true. One must be true, the other must, by virtue of this being true, must be false. 
And here's where else this notion that there are no moral absolutes, here's where else it takes us. If there is no absolute moral truth, there is no basis, there is no standard by which we measure morality. There's no standard, there's no yardstick, if you will, by what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Now, I want you to consider this example with me. Uh, I ran across it from one quite famous ethicist. Uh, It's a bit absurd. Even he admits it, but it's quite illustrative, so bear this out with me. A thief one day is casing a jewelry store. He's scoping it out in preparation for his robbing of it, and so he decides to go into the store during regular business hours to check out as much as he can the alarm system and the locks on the jewelry cases and the layout, how he's going to get in and how he's going to get out. And in the process... It's during business hours, so the store is open. He accidentally sort of stumbles into a discussion with the owner of the jewelry store, a gal whose hobby happens to be philosophy and ethics. The jewelry store owner sort of right out of the box proclaims her belief that truth and morals, well, they're just all relative, she says. So, says the jewelry store owner, everything is relative. That's why I believe all morals are not absolute, that right and wrong is up to the individuals to determine within just the confines, the bounds of society. But there is no absolute right, there is no absolute wrong, she says. The thief ponders that for a moment and says, that is a very interesting perspective. I couldn't agree with you more that there is no absolute right and wrong and that we are entirely free to do, well, just whatever we want to do. And the conversation ends at that point. The thief leaves the store, and returns later that very same night, and he breaks into the store. He disables the alarms, he breaks into the jewelry cases, he's in the process of robbing the store blind, when just then, through a side door, enters the jewelry store owner. The thief reaches into his waistband and pulls out a gun and points it in the general direction of said owner, and the owner cannot see the thief's face at this point because, well, he's wearing a ski mask. Don't shoot me! The jewelry store owner says when she sees the gun, please just take whatever you want and please just leave me alone. That's exactly what I plan to do, says the thief. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Just a minute, says the jewelry store owner. I know you. You're the guy who was in the store earlier today. I recognize your voice. And the thief says, how very unfortunate for you. Because now you also know what I look like And because I'm not about to go to jail, I have no choice except but to kill you. But you can't do that, says the jewelry store owner. Why not? Because it's not right, pleads the very desperate jewelry store owner. Ah, but the thief says, didn't you tell me just today that there is no right and there is no wrong? Yes, but I did say that, but I have a family, I have children, I have a husband who all need me. Who cares, says the thief. Because there is no right, because there is no wrong, it makes no difference whether or not I kill you. If I let you live, you will turn me in. I'll go to prison. Sorry, can't let that happen. But it's a crime against society to kill me. Society says murder is wrong. As you can see, the thief says, I do not recognize society's claims to impose its morals upon me. It's all relative to your perspective, remember? Please don't shoot me, I beg you. I promise, I swear that I will not tell anyone who you are and what you did. I don't believe you, and I'm not about to take the chance. It's, it's true, she pleads. I swear it. I will not tell anyone. Sorry, but it can't be true because there is no absolute truth. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is no error. Remember, you've said so yourself. If I let you live, you will break your so-called promise because everything, well, is just 
relative. There's no way that I can trust you. But it's wrong to kill me. It isn't right. The thief replies, it is neither wrong nor right for me to kill you. Since truth is just relative to the individual, if I kill you, well, that's just my truth. I'm just living out my truth. And it's obvious that if I let you live, I'll go to prison. Sorry, but you've killed yourself. No, please don't shoot me. I beg you, the store owner says. And I leave it to your imagination to figure out what happens next. Kind of a choose-your-own-adventure illustration of sorts. And in the end, where all of that lands is that if there are really no moral absolutes, if there's no source of absolute truth, if there is no absolute truth itself, then there's no standard whatsoever by which we can judge anything, right? Consider Hitler for just a moment. If there's no standard, if there's no absolute truth, then what's the measuring stick against which we place Hitler's deeds, what he did? truth claim do we stand on to say that's right, to say it's evil, to say it's wrong? We'd simply say that he was just merely following his truth from his perspective of what truth is. If there's no standard of absolute truth, then we can never ever say that anything is right, anything is evil, anything is wrong, because that would be an absolute moral judgment. And without a standard of absolute morality, There's nothing against which to stack all of that. And it's in my opinion that the whole argument for moral relativism, it's at that point right there where the whole deal falls apart, really. If you've been in a conversation with somebody, maybe you've experienced this because you can't find a person who will be willing to say that a guy like Hitler was just free to follow his own convictions of what truth was and murder millions upon millions of innocent people. Moral relativism falls apart at that very point right there, in my view. But there are these truths, see, that spiritual champions grasp and understand and are actually contending for day to day. Here's what they believe and understand. First of all, that there are moral absolutes and that they are founded on God's unchanging moral character. They're not just floating around out there in outer space, but these moral absolutes are founded on God's unchanging moral character. They're rooted in who God is. God, then, is the yardstick. God is the standard. I'm not saying God is a yardstick, by the way, okay? Hear me correctly. He's the standard or the yardstick by which we measure moral absolutes. Francis Schaeffer, who's quite a bright man, says it this way. One of the distinctions of the Judeo-Christian God is that not all things are the same to him. That at first may sound rather trivial, he says, kind of like, duh. But in reality, it is one of the most profound things one can say about the Judeo-Christian God. First of all, that he exists. Second, that he has a character. And third, that not all things are the same to him. Some things conform to his character. Some things are then opposed to his character, which means that spiritual champions are always and constantly making a determination about what conforms to God's character and what doesn't conform to God's character. That's what we're doing. We're assessing constantly, moment by moment. Does that conform to God's character or does it not? Does that conform to God's character or does it not? 
And much of the time, that determination is relatively easy and almost instantaneous because through this very cool thing called general revelation, God has actually written his moral code upon our souls in the form of a conscience. God actually, through this thing called general revelation, wrote, if you will, his moral code right upon our souls in the form of a conscience. He hardwired it into us. He built it in. You can call it whatever you want, a conscience, an attitude, whatever, but no matter what you call it, there is, according to a guy named Linton, a basic pattern of similarity among all ethical codes on planet Earth that have ever existed. There is a similarity. Such things as murder, lying, adultery, and cowardice are, for example, almost universally and almost always condemned. He says that the universality of the ethical sense itself, the similarities within the codes of different cultures, points back to a common moral heritage for all of humankind that mere naturalism cannot explain. He's saying, look, there is a common source of this moral code that is absolutely innate in all of humanity. It's hardwired in, built in, inscribed by God himself upon our souls. While certainly there would be some disputes about the morality of certain very specific actions, there is this absolute moral order that lays outside of and yet is built into humanity's very being. Who does that point to but God himself, creator of all of humanity? It all points right to God himself. The apostle John put it this way in God's sacred text, John 1, 9. The one who is the true light, God himself, who gives light to everyone, who inscribes his very moral code, which extends and descends from his very character, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, written on our souls. Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, said it this way, Romans 2.14, even Gentiles, Paul says, now a Gentile is anyone, every time you see that word, just think, Gentile equals not a Jew, okay? Gentile equals not a Jew. Even Gentiles, even non-Jewish people who do not have God's written law because God's written law had been given exclusively to the Jewish people. They show that they know his law. That's God's law. Watch this. When they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it, God wrote his moral order right on our souls. And the moral order that he wrote on our souls is founded and rooted and descends from the very nature and the very character of God himself. C.S. Lewis, who you've all heard of, says it this way. The moral law, the rule of right and wrong, the law of human nature, whatever you call it, he says, must somehow be a real thing, a thing that is really there, not just made up by ourselves. And yet it is not a fact in the ordinary sense the same way as our actual behavior is a fact. It begins to look as if we shall have to admit that there is more than one kind of reality, that in this particular case, there is something above and beyond the ordinary facts of men's and women's behavior, and yet quite definitely real. Watch this, a real law which none of us made, but which we find pressing in on us. God's very moral code itself inscribed and written upon our hearts, upon our souls, by way of a conscience, call it. 
There is indeed, see, an order outside of these empirical five senses that we all possess. And this order, by its very nature, must be treated as an absolute because it is rooted and founded in the absolute character and nature of God. This voice of conscience echoes down the corridors of time, imploring us and inviting us to respect life, to love parents, to love God, to love and serve our neighbor, fellow man. And so there's this general revelation thing going on, this way by which God put his truth written on our souls inside of us. And then God takes it even a step further, which is absolutely fantastic. He writes it on our souls, and then he does this thing that we call special revelation, which is the Bible. Special revelation is the Bible. He's given us through his sacred text the framework on which we can construct and build a completely unambiguous view of morality and ethics. Nothing relative about it. Completely unambiguous. And so when we ask the question, when it comes to specific moral absolutes, where in the world do those come from? How then are we to live? The answer is that God gave us those absolutes in his sacred text. The ones that he didn't write on our souls, he gave to us in the sacred text, the Bible. Now, get this. It is absolutely impossible for every single situation that requires a moral decision to be contained in the Bible. It'd be, you know, too big to carry to church, right? But God gave us enough specific values and guidelines to have a sense of what's right and what's wrong in every situation. And so then, see, it is upon this foundation of God's general revelation through our conscience, the special revelation then of God through his sacred text to us, on that foundation stands two towering precepts which frames our understanding of morality as Christ followers, that frames our understanding of morality as spiritual champions. Listen very closely to these. God longs for humanity, first of all, to discern between good and evil. He actually longs for us to discern between good and evil. Because see, part of what it means to live out of God's absolute moral character is to be able to discern the difference between what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. Look at Hebrews 5.14 with me. Look at what the author of the Hebrews says. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now, sometimes in the church, we like to make solid food about some things that it appears the author of the Bible does not make it about. Solid food, as the author of the Hebrews gives it to us, is really being able to discern the difference between right and wrong, to tell the difference between right and wrong. That is solid food for the Christ follower. See. A few years ago, my wife Dana and I, we were on a date at a quaint little restaurant called Applebee's over in Billings. We were enjoying our lovely meal. And uh, sitting across, we were in a booth, and then there was a, an aisle, and then there was another booth just across that aisle, sort of straight across from us. And uh, our server came and took our order, and then our server came and took their order over there. And it was uh, two women and a, a child, about an eight or nine-year-old boy or so. 
And so our food comes and we're eating it and their food comes and they're sort of eating it. The two women are eating, but this eight or nine-year-old boy is not eating his food. He's just sort of playing with it and he's sort of whining and complaining about not wanting this food. It's an eight or, nine, eight or nine-year-old boy, so you know he's able to verbalize exactly what he wants and what he doesn't want, and he does not want this food. And so Dan and I were enjoying conversation, enjoying this meal, and this over here across the aisle, though, is starting to get a little, mm, because this kid is whining more and more, and the mom is imploring her son, please uh, eat this food, get, hurry, you know, you just got to eat this food. He had ordered one of these kids' meals, you know, and he just didn't want this food. And, and I'm starting to get irritated, because what's going on over there is kind of obnoxious, and it's interrupting my date with my luscious wife, and I'm irritated, and like, come on, get your kid under control, eight or nine years old, Right? What's the deal? Well, pretty soon, I start to get what's happening here. The kid is whining more and more. The kid is whining more and more. The kid is whining more and more. And this kid does not want that food that mom ordered from Applebee's because this kid at eight or nine years old wants his meal from his mom, if you know what I mean. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. I'll give you just a minute. From his mom, if you know what I mean. And so the kid is, I'm not going to eat this food. Mom, I want you to feed me, please. Will you feed me, please? And I'm like, what in the world is going on over there? Uh Uh-uh, that's not really gonna happen. And pretty soon there was enough whining, things were getting carried away enough that pretty soon mom put eight or nine-year-old boy right up on her lap and he just latched right on and got his dinner meal. Check, please. No. At our house, the way we thought about it was when a kid's old enough to ask for it, it's time to stop it. Right? That's how we thought about it. If that offends you, I'm very sorry. None of us who are parents want to have kids who are attached to their mother's breast for their whole lives as their source of food and sustenance like this eight or nine-year-old boy was. Right? None of us want that for our kids. Just like God wants us to be mature, moving on from this milk deal to the solid food deal. But that does not happen overnight, does it? That milk to solid food deal takes a process of skillful training and skillful learning, doesn't it? It's a process that unfolds. And the process goes something like this. Mom nurses said child for a while, and then it becomes time not to nurse said child anymore. And so we trick them into drinking this stuff. We put it in a bottle and say, it's time for you to drink this. And so they do this stuff for a while. It's a little powdered mix. You add a little warm water to it and deception, liquid deception (laughs) right in their mouth, right? And then we move them on to this. Isn't this good stuff? You should all just eat this right? And uh, to to sort of continue the deception, sometimes we mix these two things together. Like, see, isn't that tasty? Yep, and so they eat. This is a little solid, right? Getting a little solid. Still pretty soupy, but a little solid. Then they move on to this lovely stuff. And uh, here we have liquefied carrots in a plastic container. It just jiggles around in there. We think that this stuff started as a powder, and then was reconstituted, that's a great word, reconstituted by adding water, and then we feed it to our children and tell them the whole time, it's so good, but you won't eat this stuff. <laughs> no way. 
Now, it gets a little better. Stuff like applesauce, you know, we eat applesauce, some of us anyway, and so th- this stuff's pretty good. And then the worst of them all are the green beans. I mean, like, bleh. you can hardly even stand the smell of this stuff, right? So we see the progression here, right? Liquid, little solid, little more solid. Oh, yeah, and then at some point we introduce these evil things. This is revenge upon parents by the cookie companies, right? These are, these are terrible things. Kids, infants, you know, they, they like um, gum these things because they don't have any teeth, and so they gum them, and, and th- uh, this stuff becomes uh, cookie paste and is everywhere on their face and in their ears and other orifices, and uh, that, that's evil. So they do this somewhere, usually in this junction, right in here, you know, they get about that. Then... You move on to, they got these graduates things now. This is toddler food, right? So you see the progression. We're going like liquid, semi-liquid, a little more solid. You got these that turn into paste. And then these, right? Here we have beef ravioli and tomato sauce with green beans and mashed potatoes and gravy with roasted chicken and carrots. But it really doesn't matter. You could just eat the box and it would taste the same as what's inside of the box. But see the progression, Gradually moving from liquid to solid food. And then, right, they move from this stuff to like this T-bone right here. Yeah, I hear an amen on that one. Ooh, I think it's dripping blood. Yuck. No, it's just water, really. This is like the quintessential solid food, steak. And we all want to see our kids move from this place, liquid, to solid food, right? And remember what the text says solid food is. Remember what the text says steak is. Steak is the ability to discern right and wrong. That's solid food. The ability to discern right and wrong. And then a very funny thing happens. Life is just completely circular, is it not? Because we start with liquid, move on, semi-liquid, semi-solid, solid, solid, and then when we're old, we drink this insure stuff. <laughs> and we go out drinking liquid, just like when we came into the world, right? It's just the same as that progression of teaching our children how to move from liquid food to solid food when it comes to our learning to discern the difference between right and wrong, see? We all possess, all, every human being possesses that general moral code that is inscribed upon our conscience. But see, it's the situational piece of discerning right and wrong that must be skillfully and carefully taught to us. What's right and what's wrong about somebody verbally assaulting me? Or me verbally assaulting someone else? What's right and what's wrong with somebody physically assaulting me? Or me physically assaulting someone else? What's right and what's wrong with me losing my temper with someone or someone losing their temper with me? What's right and what's wrong with my sexual conduct while dating someone of the opposite sex? How am I supposed to live inside of that relationship? What's right or what's wrong with me being unequally yoked while dating or married to someone of the opposite sex? What's right and what's wrong? The moral code that God put inside of us does not function at that level of detail, but it must be trained into us, see. Just like teaching kids to eat solid food, we must skillfully teach and train people in the underlying principles of what's right 
and what's wrong. It is not enough for us to just say, that's right, keep doing that, that's wrong, stop doing that. It is not enough. And I find it very tempting at our house sometimes, we have four little kids, six, five, five, and three, almost four. I find it very easy sometimes just to go, that's right, keep doing that, and that's wrong, stop doing that. It's very tempting. But it isn't enough, see. And I find that I want to do that. I find that I want to just say, that's right, do that, and that's wrong, don't do that, because I'm lazy, really. Because it is a difficult and arduous process to actually teach our kids, to teach anybody, the underlying principles of why that's right and why we should continue to do that and why that's wrong and why we should stop doing that. Because it requires that we get down on our hands and knees, and in the case of kids, we have to take it down to their level, we have to unpack it at their, in their vocabulary, and that's difficult. It's not easy. It's a whole lot easier just to keep watching TV or just keep my nose poked in the newspaper or keep engaged in whatever it is I'm trying to be engaged in when my kid is interrupting me or a situation is interrupting me. But it's what it requires, see. It is not overnight. It is not automatic. And we must constantly be pointing our children, we must constantly be pointing everyone back to the source of what is right and the source of what is wrong. That's right, you should continue to do that, please, Bailey, because that's part of who God is. It's part of his nature and his character. And because it's part of his nature and character, here's what that looks like. When your friend at school mistreats you, you don't retaliate. You love them. And here's why, because that's part of God's nature and God's character. And you don't hit your brother or your sister because that's wrong. And that's part of God's nature and God's character. But that requires us getting down and getting dirty, and it requires that we not be lazy, see. That is the process of discipleship, it's called. Helping people understand what's right and what's wrong, and why it's right and why it's wrong, rooted and founded in God himself, pointing back to God's nature, back to God's character, back to who God is, see. That's the first precept that frames our understanding of morality, see, is that God longs for humanity to discern what's right and what's wrong, but God does not leave it there. He doesn't say, it's enough for you just to know what's right and wrong. It goes on. The second pillar is this one. God challenges us to choose the good, avoid the evil. Do what's right, don't do what's wrong. This isn't just an intellectual exercise. This stuff does not just operate at the intellectual level. It must move to action, see. And look at what Romans 12, 9 says in this vein. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Hate what is wrong. Don't do what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Do what is good. Now, Christianity screws this verse up sometimes because that word right after hate is what, isn't it? Hate what is wrong. But sometimes we Christians, we pull out the word what and we insert the word who instead. Right? We have quite a history of doing that. Hate who is wrong. But God's word is very descriptive. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Never the who. Never the who. Why? Because God loves people. 
All people. All people. God says, look, don't just keep this at an intellectual level. Do what is right. Don't do what is wrong. It all moves to a place of action. God invites us to actually do what is right, not just because it's right, but because it's who he is. See, God challenges us not to do what is wrong because it's wrong according to who he is. It isn't just wrong. It's wrong according to who he is. Now, I think lots of you know that our family is in the process of adopting these three kids from Ethiopia. Two girls, two boys, and a girl. Nine, 12, and 13. Girl, nine, boy, 12, boy, 13. And at nine, 12, and 13, you're smart enough to know that those kids have lived a whole lot of their formative years not under our influence, right? A whole lot, most of their formative years not under our influence, under an influence, frankly, that we know about that much about. That means they're going to have patterns when they arrive in our home, hopefully sometime this summer, with these patterns already deeply established in them. Good patterns and not so good patterns. And when they land in our house and when they land in our family and when they land in our church and when they land in our community and when they land in our schools, hopefully later this summer, they're going to come with those patterns, good and not good, that they've established as part of who they are. And so when I pray for those three new kids that we're inviting and adopting into our family, I pray Romans 12, 9 for them. It's what I pray. And I would ask you to pray the same thing for those three kids, that they would hate what is wrong. That they would just not even desire to go and do what is wrong, but they would hold tightly to what is good, that they would just go do what is right. That they would hate what is wrong and they would hold tightly to what is good that they would be people who simply do the right thing and don't do the wrong thing. And that they would know exactly what is good, what is right, and what is wrong, what is bad. Because every single one of us sitting in this room knows full well that starting to teach a nine, a 12, and a 13-year-old what's right and what's wrong is gonna be a very bumpy ride, isn't it? If you're starting at that level of what's right and what's wrong, it's gonna be a very bumpy right so I invite you to pray that with us if you would please but I tell you what if they get it if they get what's right and if they get what's wrong then the rest of the stuff that we face as a family with those guys it's gonna be a breeze like who cares that they don't speak English that'll be really easy compared to having to start at ground zero with everything that's right and everything that's wrong see please pray that with us if you would And I told you in the beginning of this message that there are very dramatic consequences of compromising moral absolutes. Very dramatic consequences. You might have been in a conversation with people before who hold to a morally relative view of ethics. And they might have said something to you along the lines of their view being superior to the Christian absolute truth, absolute morality view, because they say that the Christian view denies people their free will. It turns people into sort of cookie cutter, forces them into a mold, it forces them to act in ways that are very specific and very preordained. Robots, you might have heard somebody call us before because we hold to an absolute truth, absolute morality view. But get this, to understand the Christian, to understand the absolute truth ethic is to grasp the reality that it is not in any way an ethical code which destroys a person's free will. It is not an ethical code that eventually destroys a person's soul. 
Rather, it's this nasty little three-letter word called sin that actually destroys a person's soul and actually removes a person's free will, isn't it? That's what does it. Not an ethical code. It's sin that destroys our free will. It's sin that eventually destroys our soul. Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, a church that was already full of Christian people, he asks these Christians this question, Romans 6, 20 and 21. When you were slaves to sin, before you knew Jesus Christ, you were free from the obligation to do what is right. You were just willy-nilly, Paul says. And what was the result of you being willy-nilly? What was the result of you being free-willy, if you want to call it that? Paul answers the question. You are now ashamed of the things you used to do. Things that end in eternal doom, Paul says. You are now ashamed of the things you used to do. Things that end in eternal doom. See, compromising God's moral absolutes actually leads to the precise opposite of freedom. Sin chains us up and binds us to a very demanding, very destructive master called sin itself. And when I say destructive, I'm not just talking about a little picnic of destruction. I'm talking about the forever separated from God kind of destruction, which is destruction in its worst form. But because God loves us, and get this, it's only because God loves us, only because God loves us, through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, has been offering and continues to offer true freedom from the tyranny of sin to one and to all who will invite Jesus Christ into their lives to be their liberator, to be the one who sets them free. And Paul in Romans 6.14 shows us what freedom looks like. Sin is no longer your master, he says. In Christ, sin is no longer your master. You're no longer chained up to that tyrannical evil. You're not chained up any longer. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under, watch this, the freedom of God's grace. That's where true freedom is. It's in God's grace and only in God's grace. And see, it's when and it's only when that we choose to trust Christ to break these bonds of sin that constrain us, that we become truly freed up to live and to act in harmony with God's will, in harmony with who God is, to actually get the privilege of living the life that God intends us to live in him, the life he's intended for us to live from the very beginning of time. Freedom is found only in God. Take your stuff and set it aside, if you would, please. And would you just close your eyes and bow your heads and go to prayer? Just speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about. Just tell God what's on your heart and mind. You can do that now. And could I ask you to do me the favor of just keeping your heads bowed and your eyes closed for these next few moments? Just press in with the Lord. Do whatever business you need to do with Him. I'm going to offer some things into you and just for your consideration with Him. Maybe you're here today and you've been a Christ follower and you've seen God's absolute truth and you've seen God's morality as just a, a gray, lifeless prison. Tying your hands from the things that you'd really rather be doing. 
But maybe today, God's Holy Spirit has been prompting you to see God's truth through a new lens, to see it the way God really intended it, which is true freedom that's only found in Him. And I just invite you, if that's been you, if you mean business with God today, just confess to Him that you've seen His truth from a skewed view and that you need His help in realizing that it's in Him that you're truly freed up to live inside of a community of people who are seeking to love and serve God, to serve your neighbor ahead of yourself. Just press in with God if that's you. And maybe you and the Lord, maybe you're here today and you have some work to do on the issue of discerning good and evil. Maybe you have some work to do with the Lord on choosing the good over the evil. Maybe you've been holding something very tightly that you know is not in conformity to God's nature and God's character. What's keeping you today from just putting it down, just putting it down, could be a behavior, a habit pattern. It could even be a relationship with somebody who you know that relationship does not in any way conform to God's nature or God's character. What's keeping you today from just putting it down? What's keeping you today from choosing the good over the evil, choosing the right over the wrong? Just transact whatever business you need to do with God around all that. And maybe you're here today and this message of Jesus Christ as your liberator, as your freer from the bonds of sin, as the one true giver of freedom, maybe that's all brand new to you. But God wants you to know today that you can be freed from those bonds, you can be freed from the forever penalty of sin by inviting Jesus to be your savior, by inviting him to be your liberator. And if you've not ever trusted God with your soul through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ, what's keeping you from that today? What's keeping you from that today? If that's you, you can move into a relationship with God right now. You can do that by praying along with me right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much for sending your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. And today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that it's my sin that separated me from you. It's what I did, God, not you. I moved out on you, God. And I believe with everything in me that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of that sin. And I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. Today, God, I'm asking you to be my friend and I'm asking you to change me. I'm asking you to clean my life up. Please, God. And if you prayed with me just then, if you invited Jesus to be your liberator, your freer, that's the biggest deal of your whole life. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And I want you to know that nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's looking around this room but me. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yes, I did it. You right there. Way to go. God's changing you and you right there. God's changing you right now. 
Just make sure I catch your eye and you back there. God's changing you and freeing you. Life is all new for you. Brand new. And you back there, way back there, and both of you right there. God's changing you right now. Are there others? God, we're just privileged that you don't leave us just flapping out in the wind trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong, blowing on the breeze of public opinion and what society says is right and what society says is wrong. God, you give it to us. You write it on our soul, God. Thank you for that. And then you take it a step further by giving us your word. God, I pray that we would always see you as the standard, the yardstick by which we measure what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, and that we would be constantly and forever evaluating what's right and what's wrong, that we would be holding everything, our lives included, up against your character and measuring. Is it in conformity with who you are? And then, God, I pray for delightful conversations around this very stuff with our friends and coworkers and neighbors, God. That we would never be batting anybody on the head with a Bible, but that we would be engaging in loving, life-giving conversation, extending the invitation to people to know you as the absolute source of truth, that it isn't just relative, that it doesn't just depend on your perspective, but it can be measured and should be. And God, I pray that that would be a powerful tool in the lives of people, that they would come to know you because they've come to see you as the source of absolute truth and morality, that you are the standard above all standards, God. May many people come to know you through those conversations, God. May we be courageous in those. May we be bold in those for you. Bold and life-giving, God. We sure love you. We're sure grateful that you're our standard. We hold our lives up next to you, God. We lay them down as an offering. And we ask you to make us like your son, Jesus Christ, more and more every day. Shape us. Change us. Purify us. The stuff that doesn't fit, weed it out, God. Weed it out. We pray all of this in your precious and holy son's name, God, Jesus Christ, our liberator. And everyone said, amen.